Chapter Fifty Two, Part Two, of the Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter Fifty Two, Part Two. As they proceeded, Amanda besought the maid who seemed perfectly acquainted with everything relative to Belgrave, to tell Miss Rushbrook to believe her assertions against him if she wished to save herself from destruction. The maid assured her she would, and declared she always suspected Mr. Sipthorpe was not as good as he should be. Amanda soon found herself at the end of her little journey. The house was elegant and spacious, with a short avenue before it, planted with chestnuts. The maid's sister was an elderly-looking woman, who received Amanda with every appearance of respect, and conducted her into a handsome parlour, where a neat breakfast was laid out. "'I took care, ma'am,' said the maid, smiling, "'to apprise my sister last night of the honour she was to have this morning, "'and I am sure she will do everything in her power to oblige you.' "'I thank you both,' cried Amanda, with her usual sweetness. "'But while she spoke, a struggling tear stole down her lovely cheek "'at the idea of that forlorn situation "'which had thus cast her upon the kindness of strangers, "'strangers who were themselves the children of poverty and dependence. "'I hope, however, I shall not long be a trouble to either, "'as it is my intention immediately to look out for a lodging amongst the cottages in this neighbourhood, till I can settle my affairs to return to my friends. In the meantime, I must insist on making some recompense for the attention I have received, and the expense I have put you to. She accordingly forced a present upon each, for both the women appeared unwilling to accept them, and Mrs. Deborah, the maid's sister, said it was quite unnecessary at present to think of leaving the house, as the family would not return to it for six weeks. Amanda, however, was resolved on doing what she had said, as she could not conquer her repugnance to continue in a stranger's house. Mrs. Connell's maid departed in a few minutes. Of the breakfast prepared for her, Amanda could only take some tea. Her head ached violently, and her whole frame felt disordered. Mrs. Deborah, seeing her dejection, proposed showing her the house and garden, which were very fine, to amuse her. But Amanda declined the proposal at present, saying she thought if she lay down she should be better. She was immediately conducted to an elegant chamber, where Mrs. Deborah left her, saying she would prepare some little nice thing for her dinner, which she hoped would tempt her to eat. Amanda now tried to compose her spirits, by reflecting she was in a place of security. But their agitation was not to be subdued from the sleep into which mere fatigue threw her. She was continually starting in inexpressible terrors. Mrs. Deborah came up two or three times to know how she was, and at last appeared with dinner. She laid a small table by the bedside, and besought Amanda to rise and try to eat. There was a friendliness in her manner, which recalled to Amanda's recollection her faithful nurse Edwin, and she sighed to think 
that the shelter of her humble cottage she could no more enjoy, should a shelter be required. From its vicinity to Tudor Hall, near which every feeling of propriety and tenderness must forbid her residing, the sad remembrance of which, now reviving in her mind, drew tears from her, and rendered her unable to eat. She thanked Mrs. Deborah for her attention, but anxious to be alone, said she would no longer detain her. Yet no sooner was she alone than she found solitude insupportable. She could not sleep. The anguish of her mind was so great, and arose with the idea that a walk in the garden might be of use to her. As she was descending the stairs, she heard, notwithstanding the door was shut, a man's voice from a front parlour. She started, for she thought it was a voice familiar to her ear. With a light foot and a throbbing heart, she turned into a parlour at the foot of the stairs, which communicated with the other. Here she listened and soon had her fears confirmed, by recollecting the voice to be that of Belgrave's servant, whom she had often seen in Devonshire. She listened with that kind of horror which the trembling wretch may be supposed to feel when about hearing a sentence he expects to be dreadful. Ay, I assure you, cried the man, we are blown up at Mrs. Connell's, but that is of little consequence to us. The colonel thinks the game now in view better than that he has lost, so to-night you may expect him in a chaise and four to carry off your fair guest. I declare I am glad of it, said Mrs. Deborah, for I think she will die soon. Die soon, repeated he. Oh, yes, indeed, great danger of that and he added something else, which being delivered with a violent burst of laughter, Amanda could not hear. She thought she heard them moving towards the door. She instantly slipped from the parlour, and ascending the stairs in breathless haste, stopped outside the chamber door to listen. In a few minutes she heard them coming into the hall, and the man softly let out by Mrs. Deborah. Amanda now entered the chamber and closed the door and knowing a guilty conscience is easily alarmed, she threw herself on the bed, lest Miss Deborah, if she found her up, should have her suspicions awakened. Her desperate situation inspired her with strength and courage, and she trusted by presence of mind to be able to extricate herself from it. It was her intention, if she effected her escape, to proceed directly to London, though the idea of entering it without a certain place to go to, was shocking to her imagination. Yet she thought it a more secure place for her than any of the neighbouring cottages, which she thought might be searched. Mrs. Deborah, as she expected, soon came up to her. Amanda involuntarily shuddered at her appearance, but knowing her safety depended on the concealment of her feelings, she forced herself to converse with the treacherous creature. She at last arose from the bed, declaring she had indulged her languor too much, and after a few turns about the room, went to the window and pretended to be engrossed in admiring the garden. There is a great deal of fruit in the garden, said she, turning to Mrs. Deborah. If I did not think it encroached too much on your kindness, I should ask for a nectarine or two. Dear ma'am, replied Miss Deborah, you are heartily welcome. I declare I should have offered them to you, 
only I thought you would like a turn in the garden and pull them yourself. No, said Amanda, I cannot at present. Mrs. Deborah went off, and Amanda watched at the window till she saw her at the very end of the garden. She then snatched up her hat and tied it on with a handkerchief, the better to conceal her face, then hastily descended the stairs and locked the back door to prevent any immediate pursuit. She ran down the avenue, nor flagged in her course till she had got some paces from it. She was then compelled to do so, as much from weakness as from fear of attracting notice, if she went on in such a wild manner. She started at the sound of every carriage, and hastily averted her head as they passed. But she reached London without any alarm, but what her own fears gave her. The hour was now late and gloomy, and warned Amanda of the necessity there was for exertions to procure a lodgings. Some poor women she saw retiring from their little fruit-stand drew a shower of tears from her, to think her situation was more wretched than theirs, whom but a few days before she should have considered as objects of compassion. She knew at such an hour she would only be received into houses of an inferior description, and looked for one in which she could think there might be a chance of gaining admittance. She at last came to a small, mean-looking house. This humble roof, I think, cried she, will not disdain to shelter an unhappy wanderer. She turned into the shop, where butter and cheese were displayed, and where an elderly woman sat knitting behind the counter. She arose immediately, as if from surprise and respect at Amanda's appearance, who in universal agitation leaned against the door for support. Unable for some minutes to speak, at last in faltering accents, whilst over her pale face a crimson blush was diffused, she said, I should be glad to know if you have any lodgings to let. The woman instantly dropped into her seat and looked steadfastly at Amanda. This is a strange hour, cried she, for any decent body to come looking for lodgings. I am as sensible of that as you can be, said Amanda, but peculiar circumstances have obliged me to it. If you can accommodate me, I can assure you, you will not have reason to repent doing so. Oh, I do not know how that may be, cried she. It is natural for a body to speak a good word for themselves. However, if I do let you a room, for I have only one to spare, I shall expect to be paid for it beforehand. You shall indeed, said Amanda. Well, I will show it you, said she. She accordingly called a little girl to watch the shop, and taking a candle went up before Amanda, a narrow winding flight of stairs, and conducted her into a room, whose dirty miserable appearance made her involuntarily shrink back, as if from the den of wretchedness itself. She tried to subdue the disgust it inspired her with, by reflecting that after the imminent danger she had escaped, she should be happy to procure any asylum she could consider safe. She also tried to reconcile herself to it by reflecting that in the morning she should quit. Well, ma'am, said the woman, the price of the room is neither more nor less than one guinea per week, and if you do not like it, you are very welcome not to stay. I have no objection to the price, replied Amanda, but I hope you have quiet people in the house. 
I flatter myself, ma'am, said the woman, drawing up her head. There is never a house in the parish can boast a better name than mine. I am glad to hear it, answered Amanda, and I hope you are not offended by the inquiry. She now put her hand in her pocket for the purse to give the expected guinea, but the purse was not there. She sat down on the side of the bed and searched the other, but with as little success. She pulled out the contents of both, but no purse was to be found. Now, now, cried she, clasping her hands together in an agony which precluded reflection. Now, now I am lost indeed. My purse is stolen, she continued, and I cannot give you the promised guinea. No, nor never could I suppose, exclaimed the woman. Ah, I suspected all along what you were, and so you was glad my house had a good name. I shall take care it does not lose the name by lodging you. I conjure you, cried Amanda, starting up, and laying her hand on the woman's. I conjure you to let me stay this night. You will not. You shall not lose by doing so. I have things of value in a trunk in town, for which I will this instant give you a direction. Your trunk, replied the woman in a scornful tone. Oh, yes, you have a trunk with things of value in it, as much as you have a purse in your pocket. A pretty story, indeed. But I know too much of the ways of the world to be deceived nowadays, so march directly. Amanda again began to entreat, but the woman interrupted her and declared, if she did not depart directly, she would be sorry for it. Amanda instantly seized her importunities, and in trembling silence followed her downstairs. Oppressed with weakness, she involuntarily hesitated in the shop, which the woman perceiving, she rudely seized her and pushing her from it, shut the door. Amanda could not now, as in former exigencies, consider what was to be done. Alas, if even capable of reflection, she could have suggested no plan which there was a hope of accomplishing. The powers of her mind were overwhelmed with horror and anguish. She moved mechanically along, nor stopped till from weakness she sunk upon the step of a door, against which she leaned her head in a kind of lethargy. But from this she was suddenly aroused by two men who stopped before her. Death alone could have conquered her terrors of Belgrave. She instantly concluded these to be him and his man. She started up, uttered a faint scream, and calling upon heaven to defend her, was springing past them when her hand was suddenly caught. She made a feeble but unsuccessful effort to disengage it, and overcome by terror and weakness fell, though not fainting, unable to support herself, upon the bosom of him who had arrested her course. Gracious heaven, cried he, I have heard that voice before. Amanda raised her head. Sir Charles Bingley, she exclaimed. The feelings of joy, surprise and shame that pervaded her whole soul and thrilled through her frame were in its present weak state too much for it and she again sank upon his shoulder. The joy of unexpected protection, for protection she was convinced she should receive from Sir Charles Bingley, was conquered by reflecting on the injurious ideas her present situation must excite in his mind. Ideas she feared she should never be able to remove. 
so strongly were appearances against her. "'Gracious heaven!' exclaimed Sir Charles. "'Is this Miss Fitzalan?' "'Oh, this!' he cried, in a tone of deep dejection. "'Is indeed a meeting of horror!' A deep convulsive sob from Amanda alone proclaimed her sensibility, for she lay motionless in his arms, arms which involuntarily encircled and enfolded her to a heart that throbbed with intolerable anguish on her account. His friend stood all this time a spectator of the scene. The raillery which he had been on the point of uttering at seeing Amanda, as he thought, so premeditatedly fell into the arms of his companion, was stopped by the sudden exclamation of Sir Charles. Though the face of Amanda was concealed, the glimmering of a lamp over their heads gave him a view of her fine form, and the countenance of Sir Charles as he bent over her, full of sorrow and dismay. "'Miss Fitzalan,' cried Sir Charles, after the silence of a minute, "'you are ill. Allow me to have the pleasure of seeing you home.' "'Home?' repeated Amanda, in the slow and hollow voice of despair, and raising her languid head. "'Alas, I have no home to go to.' Every surmise of horror which Sir Charles had formed from seeing her in her present situation was now confirmed. He groaned, he shuddered, and scarcely able to stand, was obliged to lean with the lovely burden he supported against the rails. He besought his friend either to procure a chair or coach in which he might have her conveyed to a house where he knew he could gain her admittance. Touched by his distress and the powerful impulse of humanity, his friend instantly went to comply with his request. The silence of Amanda, Sir Charles imputed to shame and illness, and grief and delicacy forbade him to notice it. His friend returned in a few minutes with a coach, and Sir Charles then found that Amanda's silence did not altogether proceed from the motives he had ascribed it to, for she had fainted on his bosom, she was lifted into the carriage, and he again received her in his arms. On the carriage stopping, he committed her to the care of his friend, whilst he stepped into the house to procure a reception. In a few minutes he returned with a maid, who assisted him in carrying her upstairs. But on entering the drawing-room, how great was his amazement, when a voice suddenly exclaimed, "'Oh, merciful powers! This is Miss Donald!' It was indeed to Mrs. Connell's house and to the care of the Rushbrooks, whom his bounty had released from prison, he had brought her. He had previously informed them of the situation in which he found her, little suspecting at the time she was the Miss Donald they mentioned being under such obligations to. "'It is I, it is I!' cried Mrs. Rushbrook, gazing on her with mingled horror and anguish. It is I have been the occasion of her distress, and never shall I forgive myself for it. Oh, my preserver, my friend, my benefactress, said Emily, clasping her in an agony of tears to her bosom. Is it thus your Emily beholds you? Amanda was laid upon a couch, and her hat being removed, displayed a face which with the paleness of death had all the wildness of despair a wildness that denoted more expressively than language could have done, the conflicts her spirit had endured. 
Heavy sighs announced her having recovered from her fainting fit, but her eyes still continued closed, and her head, too weak to be self-supported, rested against the arm of the couch. Mrs. Rushbrook and her daughter hung over her in inexpressible agonies. If they were thus affected, oh, how was Sir Charles Bingley distressed? Oh, how was his heart, which loved her with the most impassionate tenderness, agonised? As he bent over the couch, the big tear trickled down his manly cheek and fell upon the cold, pale face he contemplated. He softly asked himself, Is this Amanda? Is this she, whom but a short time ago I beheld moving with unequalled elegance, adorned with unrivalled beauty, whom my heart worshipped as the first of women, and sought to unite its destiny to, as the surest means of rendering that destiny happy. Oh, what a change is here! How feeble is that form! How hollow is that cheek! How heavy are those eyes, whose languid glance speak incurable anguish of the soul! Oh, Amanda, was the being present who first led you into error? What horror and remorse must seize his soul at seeing the consequence of that error? Has this unhappy young creature asked Rushbrook, who had approached the couch and viewed her with the truest pity, no connections that could be prevailed on to save her. None that I know of, replied Sir Charles. Her parents are both dead. Happy are the parents, resumed Rushbrook, who, shrouded in the dust, cannot see the misfortunes of their children, the fall of such a child as this, glancing his tearful eyes as he spoke on his daughter's. "'And pray, sir,' said Mrs. Connell, who was chafing her temples with lavender, "'if she recovers what is to become of her?' "'It shall be my care,' cried Sir Charles, "'to procure her an asylum.' "'Yes, madam,' he continued, "'looking at her with an expression of mingled tenderness and grief. "'He that must forever mourn thy fate will try to mitigate it. "'But does she not want medical assistance?' I think not, replied Mrs. Connell. It is want of nourishment and rest has thrown her into her present situation. Want of nourishment and rest, repeated Sir Charles. Good heavens, continued he, in the sudden agony of his soul, and walking from the couch. Is it possible that Amanda was a wanderer in the streets without food or a place to lay her head in? Oh, this is dreadful! "'Oh, my friends!' he proceeded, looking around him, whilst his eyes beamed the divine compassion of his soul. "'Be kind, be careful of this poor creature, but it is unnecessary to exhort you to this, and excuse me for having done so. Yes, I know you will delight in binding up a broken heart and drying the tears of a wretched outcast. A short time ago, and she appeared,' he stopped, overcome by his emotions, and turned away his head to wipe away his tears. A short time ago, he resumed, and she appeared all that the heart of a man could desire, all that a woman should wish and ought to be. Now she is fallen indeed, lost to herself and to the world. No, cried Emily, with generous warmth, starting from the side of the couch at which she had been kneeling, I am confident she never was guilty of an error. I am inclined indeed to be of Emily's opinion, said Mrs. Rushbrook. 
I think the monster who spread such a snare for her destruction traduced Miss Donald in order to drive her from those who would protect her from his schemes. Would to heaven the truth of your conjecture could be proved, exclaimed Sir Charles. Again he approached the couch. Amanda remained in the same attitude, but seeing her eyes open, he took her cold hand and in a soothing voice assured her she was safe. But the assurance had no effect upon her. Hers, like the dull cold ear of death, was insensible of sound. A faint spark of life seemed only quivering through her woe-worn frame. She is gone, cried Sir Charles, pressing her hand between his. She is gone, indeed. O oh, sweet Amanda, the mortal bounds that enclose thy afflicted spirit will soon be broken. I trust not, sir, exclaimed Captain Rushbrook. His wife and daughter were unable to speak. In my opinion, she had better be removed to bed. Amanda was accordingly carried to a chamber, and Sir Charles remained in the drawing-room till Mrs. Rushbrook had returned to it. She informed him Miss Donald continued in the same state. He desired a physician might be sent for, and departed in inexpressible dejection. End of chapter 52, part 2